If you agree with um, what I'm about to say, I'm going to ask you to respond by saying amen. So here's what I'm about to say. God is greater than your circumstances. A lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people who are watching the world events this last week and seeing airliners shot out of the sky and wars breaking out of the Middle East again and believing that God may not be in control, that God may not be greater than circumstances. I believe the God who is greater than your circumstances is going to to speak to specific issues in your life this morning. And what I'd like to do before we get into the text is pray for you and for myself about individuals who you know, who are looking at the world stage, looking at global events and wondering if there really is a God and if he really is in control. Because chances are you're going to be able to have conversations this week with people in your life whom you can point towards God, especially in light of what you're about to look at this morning. So let me pray with you that God will open up those opportunities. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps even some in this room are wondering if you're in control. We come before you just by uttering the name Jesus in recognizing that we're ushered right into the throne room. And we stand before the God of all gods. You are on your throne and you are in control and we are willing to declare that and say that there is nothing that is beyond your capacity. So Father, in the midst of our week ahead of us and even in our day and the hours before us, we would ask that as circumstances arise that make us feel as though we're not victors and as though you're not in control. We recognize that's human nature and that sometimes it's the temptations of Satan. Father, remind us of the truths of Scripture. There is nothing that surpasses you. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we willingly declare that. So we come to your word now. And we ask that you give us insight and you give us capacity to see through the activity of the Holy Spirit whom I know is active in this room right now. Father, that you would unleash the power of the Holy Spirit to give us a capacity to see things that we cannot see on our own. That you reveal truth to us. Help us to understand you much more fully. In Jesus' name we will pray. Amen. So I'm convinced that if some of the New Testament authors were alive today, that they would be following ESPN. I'll back that up. I'm convinced that some of the writers in the New Testament were very, very interested in sports. And you see analogies that they use throughout the course of their writings in in the sports world comparing it to the Christian walk. That'll come out of the text this morning. Now, here's the setting that the writer presents for us. He presents a massive stadium which is filled with spectators while there's runners on a track. I don't know what sport your sport is, but you probably have a specific area that you would like to compete in. Everybody has it. It just pops in their mind whether or not they consider themselves athletic. Now, regardless of your age, if, if you could compete in one world athletic sport, athletic sport, what would it be? Just shout out a few that are interesting to you. Tennis. Rugby, soccer, swimming, 
Volleyball. Curling. Curling. I had a lady last night who was more than 70 years of age say she'd like to be in gymnastics. I thought, good for you, excellent, great attitude. The setting that the author presents for us, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, by the way. In Hebrews chapter 12, we find the setting of athletic competition. And he draws us into this setting to help us to imagine that we're athletes on a field. Now, imagine you're not just an athlete on a track in this particular case, but you are a world-class athlete. And the stage that you're competing on is drawing not only spectators, but it's drawing all the former world champions in your particular sport. As a matter of fact, if, if your sport was basketball, he's envisioning Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Magic Johnson on the front row there to watch you. World champions. Why do I say that? Well, because of Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, he lists all the heroes of the faith, all the great champions, the warriors, who themselves saw themselves just like you, you see yourself, not necessarily as champions. But by the time they got to the end of their life, they had walked so faithfully, so enduring with God, they were considered to be the heroes of the faith. So he's reaching back into chapter 11 as we come into chapter 12, and he sets the stage for us. Go with me to verse 1, Hebrews chapter 12, and it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, in my experience, really successful teaching incorporates two things. It's concise and it uses imagery. And that's exactly what this author is doing. He's using very concise imagery and he steps it up a notch by energizing it and taking us into the sports world and he focuses on a race. And immediately draws himself into it because he says, we are surrounded, meaning he puts himself on the racetrack. He says, I'm not dead yet. I'm still part of this thing. And so he's one of those who's in the midst of this race, and he pictures the stadium as completely packed. It's full of this vast crowd. Well, who's there? Well, he reaches back to chapter 11. He says, this cloud of witnesses surrounding us. It's all the saints who were just mentioned in chapter 11. So he's saying, you can run like they did. Always believing, never giving up, no matter the obstacles. That's why he listed Moses standing before Pharaoh, the children of Israel at the walls of Jericho, Daniel, those who shut the mouths of lions, those who were tortured, those who lived in animal skins just to survive because of the persecution. And he ended it up by saying those who were made destitute. Now, in those situations, I understand my experience in my walk is there's only one way to successfully stand in situations like that. And that is through faith alone in Christ alone. That's what Scripture tells us. The writer says you can run like that. It can be done if you run in faith. These individuals ran, and they had so much less light than what you have today. We talked about that last week. They had glimpses and pieces of the Old Testament in which they could put together this imagery that there was a Messiah coming one day. We've got the whole story. The entire Bible is put together for us. Now, the truth is, if you had a stadium filled with great people looking down on you, it could be paralyzing. 
It could be incredibly paralyzing if we were called to please those who are in the stands. It might stop you in your tracks. But that's not the sense of what's going on here. The sense is not that we have to be faithful so we don't disappoint them as though they're, they're fans in the stands who have paid a ticket price to get in. Rather, these are witnesses to God of His faithfulness, of what He did through them. So they stand as an example of what God can do through mankind. So the writer is saying, look at the winners. Look at these who have achieved this great cloud. They're bearing witness to God that He will see you through. And we would have to say, seeing how God was with them really encourages us because their God is our God, right? You don't seem very convinced. (laughs) Their God is our God, right? I mean, same God yesterday, today, and forever. That's what Scripture says. So their God is our God. Therefore, He's capable of doing the same thing through us that He did through them. The God who never changes. So Scripture says not only can He, but He will do the same things through us if we trust Him. That's why He's building this faith case. Now there's a step to get there. And the first step that's required for you to get there is found right there in verse 1. It says, lay aside every weight. So you've got to examine yourself. You've got to ask yourself a question. Am I carrying a weight this morning? Is there something that's slowing me down? Now, in athletics, individuals wear training weights today. It might surprise you to know that people who lived in the first century competing for athletic competition would wear training weights. They, the runners would put ankle weights on to prepare themselves for the race. For me, I can think back into my own college and high school experience. My analogy for myself is when I competed in baseball. I played college baseball and, and high school baseball. And so we would use weights on the end of our bats. We would pick up bats that were either bigger than the one that we would use at home plate, or we would add weights to it in the form of a metal donut on the end of the bat, and we would practice swinging with that just to build up arm strength. And then when we picked up the real bat, the real bat would feel much lighter to us. But I would never step up to home plate with a bat that still had the donut on it, the weight on it. It would impede my swing. I would not be able to swing as powerfully. Well, that's his argument here. You don't want to go into the race wearing weights. So we ask ourselves, what weights should I remove? Now, he's not talking about sin here. Sin is is the next statement that he's going to get to, but here here he's not talking about sin. So we have to ask ourselves, what weights should I be removing? Well, the answer is everything that complicates your progress, and they might even be good things. What is a weight? It's an encumbrance, according to the New American Standard Version. It's, it's a burden, a bulk in the Greek language, or a mass of something. It doesn't necessarily have to be something bad. There can be good things in your life that weigh you down. And often it could be perfectly harmless to another person. But there are possessions that you and I have that possess us that can keep us from achieving what God has called us to. There's even relationships that we can be in that can keep us from getting to what God wants us to get to. So there's things like possessions and relationships that might have a hold on us that necessarily might not be bad for somebody else, but in our case, if God has called us and we're letting that weigh us down, that weight can be a problem. So the problem is not necessarily what the weight is, but what the weight does to you. If it's impeding your progress, hear that again. The problem is not necessarily what the weight is, it's what the weight does. And it might be different in your life than it is in mine. 
because those weights draw our attention away from Jesus. They sap our energy. They might even rob us of our enthusiasm for God, and ultimately, they can keep us from running well. So you're going to have to survey your own life this morning and ask yourself, is there something in my life that's draining my energy? Is there something that's pulling my attention away from God? Is there something that's keeping me from living for Jesus and running the race well? It's not unique to our generation. Paul saw this in the first century. The church at Galatia, and by the way, if you've never read the book of Galatians, he's really hard on those guys, but the church at Galatia, he begins lecturing right away, and you find it in, in chapter 4. He says this to them, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? In other words, why are you putting the weights back on? He's going after them for that reason because that is human nature. Now, that's the first component. Evaluate your life. See if there's some weights that are holding you down. But the second one is the sin issue. And he says in verse 1, the sin which clings so closely, it just shreds itself by hanging on you. It's there all the time, and it hangs close. Now, there's a Greek word that's used specifically for this clinging closely or or hanging closely, and, and it's this word that... It, it says eupristastos, and I want you to see it on the screen because you need to understand it's not talking about someone who lives in the Upper Peninsula. It's not a euper. This is an individual who puts themselves in your path. When you're running the race, your opponent or adversary purposely cuts you off and will get in front of you. That's eupristastos, this individual who has, becomes an obstacle to you and gets in your path. Well, there's one large obstacle that gets in our path and keeps us from living for Christ. And he calls it right out. He says it what it is. It's sin. And sometimes this self-inflicted type sin action can really harpoon us. Now, there's one particular sin that rises above others for Christians. And he's been pointing to it in chapter 10 and then again in chapter 11. But he really made the case for it all the way through the book. The one particular sin is the sin of unbelief. For Christians who say they're people of faith and they believe in God, but yet don't believe God's promises, there's a contradiction there. So he says that becomes a kind of sin that can entangle you. It wraps your feet. And the imagery in the Greek language is this. The guy's on the racetrack and his ankles literally become trapped or wrapped up and he trips and falls over on his face. That's the sin that so easily entangles us. There's many sins that do that to us. So his counterpoint in verse 1 is, let's run with endurance. Now, endurance is another Greek word. There's a few of them that are in your notes this morning, but this one just talks about a steady determination, a purposeful focus to keep going, even when everything in you screams, stop! Now, I know what that is. I've experienced that in baseball, that, that sense of wanting to stop. Here's what I vividly recall. High school baseball taught me what I thought was everything because my coach used to play for the Detroit Tigers. And so when our high school was able to recruit him and have him come coach us at the high school level, I thought, man, I'm learning from a major league player. I'm learning everything there is to learn. So when we went through physical training, when we went through spring training, when we got onto the field, we felt really, really prepared. So when I went on to play college baseball, I was convinced this would be a piece of cake not really estimating properly the type of competition that was going to be in the room, guys who had come from other high schools around the state and around the country. 
So when we get into spring training the very first week, which was early in the year, it was February for us, there's still snow outside, and it's cold, so we start practicing in the gym. And our coach at the college level tells us we're going to be running black line drills. Anybody here knows what black line drills are? The curse of God that was given to man. I hate black line drills. So black line drills are like this. If you're practicing in a gym, there's the baseline in a gymnasium at a basketball court, and then further out quarter way, there's more black line, which would be the top of the key, and then you'd run back to the baseline, and then you'd run all the way out to half court and all the way back to the baseline, each time bending over and touching the black line and then running back, mind you, with 10 or 15 other guys out on the court at the same time. Third position would be the three-quarter of the court. Fourth position would be the very end of the basketball court and back. That's one set. In high school, we ran five black lines in spring training, okay? After every practice, you're already exhausted. They had you do it at the end of practice. So I get to spring training in college. I think I know what this is. I'm looking at the competition in the room. Figure I got this. I'll beat all these guys. We finish five sets, and my coach says, five more. We finish five more, and my coach says, five more. We did 15 sets of black line drills. Do you know the words cotton mouth? I got nothing. My chest is heaving. My legs are wobbling. I collapsed, literally. I could not keep up because I had spent myself doing the black line drills in the very, very beginning. That's exactly what the Hebrews have done. They started the race really well. They're those who were focused, and they're on the track. But as problems began to arise, they began looking at the persecution going on around them. They began looking at the circumstances. They were tempted to go back to the safe, comfortable seats, to get out of the race, to not endure. Now, to be sure, there's going to be times of weariness in your race. There's going to be times of exhaustion. It's real. But God's concern is that we would endure to the end. So this writer is envisioning these runners who put aside their weights, they've taken off their warm-up clothes, they're on the racetrack, and then he uses a very specific word in verse 1 for race. It's a word not found in many places. It's this word, the agone. It's where we get the English word agony. And it was only used of the marathon. The hardest, most grueling, enduring race that never seemed to end. And he uses that for the analogy of the Christian race, the agone. So we're not talking here about potato sack races at the church picnic. You understand? This is not an image of luxury. This is tough. It's grueling. It's agonizing. And it requires self-discipline and perseverance. So you and I, as God's people, are running a race, and, and this race is incredibly strenuous. Now, my experience throughout my years of walking with Christ is that there's generally three categories of individuals who are in this race, who are believers. And, and a few of these categories that I've observed really link in my mind with these black line drills. The, the first group that I know of are the sit-down group. They get into the race, they start out well, but they find themselves surrounded by circumstances and begin to notice I'm not feeling quite as strong as I thought I would. And they find the center of the track and they go lay down in the grass and just begin looking at the sky, wondering if they should actually get back on the track. 
The second group that I've noticed is the standstill group. They still got their warm-up clothes on, and they're just kind of walking around the track, watching people run, but they never actually get into the race themselves and never jump in and engage, kind of just waiting for Jesus to return. No involvement whatsoever, never really jumping in. And then the third group are those who run, and they're running to win. Now, it doesn't make much sense to be in a race if you're not in it to win, does it? If you have no desire to win, why would you even want to be in the race? The lack of desire to be in the race and the lack of desire to win is a huge problem in our generation today. We live among people who are lethargic Christians who are just waiting for Jesus to return. Glad to be saved, but don't ask me to do anything else. It doesn't make much sense to be in a race if you have no desire to win. So this lack of desire to win is absolutely unacceptable. If you look at Paul's writings, let me take you to one passage, 1 Corinthians 9.26. Look at his focus. This is how he says he trains. 1 Corinthians 9.26, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body. That's not the word buffet. It's not talking about eating, okay? This is, this is beating his body. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly, after I've preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, th- this sounds like competitive Christianity, okay? It's not meant to. I'm not talking about competitive Christianity. We differ from athletics in two ways. First of all, Christians are not in competition against other Christians, That's not the goal here. We're not looking at righteousness awards where we're going to stand next to each other and I could say, I'm so much more righteous than him. I can't believe it. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? So we're not talking about Christians against Christians. We're not talking about churches competing against churches. Our competitor is unlike anything or anyone else, and we do have a competitor. Matter of fact, Peter speaks to that. First Peter, specifically, 5.8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, and the word adversary in the Greek language is your opponent, your competitor, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's something I know about lions. Lions don't use napkins. They have no table manners. There's no etiquette involved. Lions seek to consume and destroy. Now, if you link this image with Eupostasos, the one I was joking about earlier, the one who gets in your way, who's constantly putting himself in your path, and you link that thought of your adversary wanting to consume you and devour you, you know that your competitor, your opponent, wants to eat you. So in the midst of this race that you're in, when you find yourself in a battle against that kind of competitor, you recognize right away, I am not able to do that in my own strength. Would you agree with that? It's just not possible because we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about an adversary unlike any adversary. I can't do this in my own strength. I can't endure this race in my own ability. I need God. So a believer has one way to stand in the midst of times like this, faith alone, in Christ alone, because we need his protection against Satan and against the temptations that he brings. That's why Ephesians 6 says, I'm going to give you a shield of faith. 
And with that shield of faith, you'll be able to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one who's going to come against you. So as we run, we trust God, we do what he asks, and Satan and sin will have no power over us. So he uses in verse 2 the ultimate example of the ultimate champion, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example who's not in the grandstands. Rather, he's at the end of the racetrack. And he's saying, come on, you can do this. He's right there at the finish line. He's our great encourager. So he points to Jesus, underscoring the magnitude of what Jesus went through. Look with me at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking to him. Now, where you look in sports is extremely important. You don't want to get up to home plate and be looking at the third baseman. You want to be looking at that pitcher who's throwing a 90-mile-an-hour fastball at you to know whether or not you got a duck. You, you want to focus your eyes on the goal. So we understand, especially in running, few things will mess you up like looking around at your competitors. You start looking at the person running on your left and on your right, and pretty soon you're going to drift out of your lane or you're going to lose your pace and lose your momentum. So the Christian race is so much like this. We get preoccupied with what's going on around us right? Or is that just me? Because I do. I get preoccupied with what's going on, begin to lose my focus, and I have to come back and say, Jesus, i got to look at him. He's the author and the finisher of the faith. How did he run? Now, looking at Jesus is an attitude. Obviously, we physically can't see him. The recipients of the letter to the Hebrews couldn't see him. Jesus had long since been dead and resurrected by the time they received this note. So it's an attitude. So throughout Hebrews, here's what we've been hearing. Been in this study for 20-some weeks now, coming to the end, and a consistent theme we're hearing from this writer, focus, focus, focus. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is superior to the Old Testament. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Focus, focus, focus on your end goal. It's the importance of the focus. Why? because the recipients were prone to lose their focus. Circumstances. Their friends are being thrown in prison. Their friends are losing their businesses. They've lost their businesses. Some of them are destitute. So he's using this one very simple Greek word, which literally aphoro means just to keep your gaze focused on him. It doesn't mean a casual glance. It means to look away from everything else and keep your eyes on the prize. Though not a casual glance, we run with nothing but eyes for Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who, according to verse 2, did something very specific. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Let me do some mental gymnastics with you for just a moment. If you and I despise something, and we think of that word appropriately in the English language, it's a great match for the Greek word. If we despise something, we want to stay away from it at all costs. There are some foods that I despise that I don't want to eat, okay? So I stay away from them at all costs. That is true. I mean, beets come to my mind. My wife's trying to get me to eat beets, but man, I just have no use for beets. Okay, another story. Um, we despise certain things, so we stay away from them. But we're told that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame, 
meaning the shame meant nothing to him. So in this case, the shame, the scorn, Jesus thought thought so little of the shame involved that he did not bother to avoid it. He went to the cross anyway. He endured it. So when I see that, I think to myself, how, why, how could that be? Well, we're told right there because of the focus, the joy that it would bring. Now, not the joy of the cross. The cross itself is not joyful. This is what we're told, that he looked right through the cross. Leon Morris, great quote from him. Look with me on the screen at this. He looked right through the cross to the coming joy, the joy of bringing salvation. For this joy, Jesus endured. So when I see that phrase, who for the joy set before him, he endured, it makes me think of some things. Just because I understand something about the first century and the culture and the Olympics and the focus of the Greeks. See, this particular race, the Agone, is something you would not enter without knowing that there's a reward at the end. In the ancient games in Greece, there was always a pedestal at the end of the race. And on that pedestal hung a wreath, something Caesar himself had sanctioned. So any individual entering the race knew that when they got to the end of the race, there wouldn't be a ribbon stretched across the track like we have today. There would be, that in their eyesight, the reward, the trophy, the thing that Caesar had said would be yours if you are the victor. So that post is in the end of the track, and they can see at the end of the track their reward, the, the wreath. Well, people run today for very specific reasons. Some run for a medal. Some run for money, some run for fame, some run just to be physically fit. Some people actually run just for the joy of exhilaration. I want you to know the race that he's talking about here in Hebrews 12 is not a race you get into for exhilaration. It's not that kind of motivation. This is the agony, the agony race, the marathon that seems to never end. So it's not a race you run for pleasure. So if it's that kind of a race... If you don't have something to look forward to at the end of the race, you're never going to start. But we're told that Jesus entered this race for a reason. Now, let me have Scripture tell you the story, just three verses that will kind of paint the picture for you of what he left when he stepped onto the racetrack. Look with me on the screen, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor, ruler of the universe, gave it all up. Philippians 2.6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That one speaks for itself. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What could possibly cause someone to do that? to enter that agony that could induce Jesus to leave what he did, to endure what he did, to step on my racetrack, to enter into our world. And we're told for the joy at the end, what kind of joy? Certainly not the joy of the earthly endurance. Certainly not the joy of being on the cross. There's no joy there. We get a glimpse. The night before Jesus is crucified, he's in the garden, We just get a flash. 
And he begins talking to his father. And he talks about what he did here on earth and what he's looking forward to. Look with me on the screen, John 17, 4. Jesus speaking, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So we ask ourselves as Christians, what prize do we run for? If Jesus was running for that kind of thing, if he was running for the glory of God, what are we running for? Well, the prize that you're running for is not for heaven. I need that to sink in. Maybe you need to hear that a second time. The prize you're running for is not for heaven. You already have that. God's Word promised that. You can't earn heaven by running well. That would be works-based Christianity, right? So you're not running on this track so you can earn the right to get into heaven. Jesus already did that for you. You belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to you. Heaven has been promised to you. So what we're running for is the same prize Jesus ran for. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. That's what Scripture says. So we achieve it the same way that he did. These two points are in your notes just coming into the home stretch here, but I want you to see them on the screen as well. Here's the first thing that we run for. We run as believers in Jesus for the glory of God to allow his attributes, what God can do to work through us, obeying him in everything that we do so that the world who's watching, who are wondering about these circumstances, who don't know God, can see you as a person running down the track with God's attributes flowing through you and say, I want to know more about that person. Why is that person so special? What makes them so different? So we run for the glory of God. And the second reason we run, we run for the joy of exaltation. Now that may not even sound biblical to you, but it is biblical. For your exaltation one day to receive rewards from the King of Kings. Scripture says there are rewards waiting for you as God's children. God promises this as a reality if we glorify Him here on earth just as the Son did. Jesus said, I've glorified you here on earth, accomplished all that you called me to do. Now glorify me in heaven. So when we run, we anticipate. And we anticipate just like any other competitor. We anticipate a heavenly reward. And not just eternity in heaven, but we anticipate a joy, a crown, Scripture says. You can actually have joy on planet earth now in the midst of your race. Matter of fact, if you look at Paul's writings, he wrote to the people at the church at Philippi, and he wrote to the people in the church at Thessalonica, and he said to them, you guys at Philippi, you are my joy and my crown. Why? Because he shaped their lives. He mentored them. He led them into the kingdom. He watched them mature in Christ. To the church at Thessalonica, he said very similar things. You are my crown and my exaltation. Why? Because he knew one day he would see them in eternity. He, he knew that he would walk with them in the eternal kingdom, but also here on earth. So th- we understand that There's a present joy that we can know now, the same kind of present joy that we will experience one day in eternity. Jesus had three reasons that he competed in this way. And I want to use that word loosely, but I want you to understand. Jesus had specific motivation behind why he did what he did. But before we get there, I'm going to ask you a question. Can you currently say, 
if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christian, can you confidently say this morning, I can't wait for the day when I hear Jesus say, great race, well done. Enter into the kingdom that I've prepared for you. Are you looking forward to that day? Or do you find yourself weary? Are you wore out? You feel like you've given it all you've got to give it. And you find yourself over in the grass. Somehow you found yourself over there and you drifted out of the race and you're not even sure how. Or maybe you're wandering around the track wondering if you should get back in again. Do you find yourself there and just exhausted? The, the writer ends in verse 3 by telling us what to do if you find yourself in that situation. Verse 3 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So question, again, just to reiterate what I just asked you. Do you find yourself struggling to live out your walk? Are, are you weary? What I'm about to say, I don't know who it's for. Back on Monday of this week, God just really pressed it on my heart. I've said it in each of the three services. Just because you're struggling doesn't mean God has turned his back on you. It doesn't mean that God has given up on you. Just because you find yourself weary does not mean God has forgotten you. You're just weary, and you need to get your focus on the right objective. And God is saying, if you find yourself weary or faint-hearted, consider Jesus. When you feel wiped out, if you're wiped out this morning of patience, you're wiped out of money, you're wiped out of faith even, consider Jesus find yourself wiped out of energy? You feel like you can't go one step further, even if you come to the point of thinking, I think God's turned his back on me. Scripture is saying to you, when it seems that you'll feel like you'll never get out of the mess that you're in, consider Jesus. I have to ask myself this question in light of what he's saying in verse 3. What is it that allowed Jesus to endure? What is it that allowed him to endure the cross? Now, logically, a lot of people would say, well, he's the son of God. He's supernatural power. Just know this. Jesus never used his supernatural powers for himself. He never used them for himself personally. You can't find it in Scripture. Matter of fact, the temptation of Satan coming to him in the very beginning of his time here on earth was all about getting Jesus to use his powers for himself. And Jesus corrected Satan very quickly by saying, I'm not here about you or proving anything to you. I'm here because of what God asked me to do, God the Father. So do not tempt me in that way. He didn't use his personal powers for himself. We're told according to Scripture, he endured everything that you and I endure just like us as a man. So what allowed him to endure? Scripture says in verse 2, he kept his eye on the focus, the joy that was set before him. His eye is on the prize. What's the prize? Well, the prize in his case is the same as it is in your case. Here's the three. The joy of returning to the Father. For you and I, one day we will be with the Father. 
We have that joy. That component is the same as Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Here's the second one. The joy of being back in his place of glory, his rightful throne to rule. That place he was returning to. Here's the third thing, the joy that he had. The joy of presenting you one day before God the Father. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Jude. It's only one chapter. You get to verse 24, and it says that one day you are going to stand in the presence of God, in the righteousness of Jesus, and he's going to present us before the Father in his righteousness. He has the joy of presenting us. So these individuals who've received this letter, these Hebrews, cannot begin to think that their situation is unique. Yeah, they're having to persevere and endure in some really hard times. The the same is true for you and I this morning. We have to endure in some hard times, but we can't think our situation is unique because we're told, according to verse 3, Jesus endured opposition from sinful men, and you know what that sentence has got packed into it. I mean, you could really unpack that phrase. He endured opposition from sinful men, so the writer says in verse 3, consider. It's a mathematical term. In the Greek language, the word consider, it's an invitation to calculate. Get out your calculator and look at what Jesus went through. What he endured. Do you really think that what you're enduring is harder than that? See, we're not asked to bear things Jesus has never endured. Let me take you back to chapter 4 just to close this out. We're told that Jesus faced everything that you and I faced. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. See, there's a reason to fix your eyes on Jesus. You can live just like him right here and right now in the present. Why? Because we don't live in our own power. We live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does that actually work out in my life? This is a Probably a cliche-sounding sentence, but I'm just going to say it. We trust him to release his power into our lives. How does that happen? We trust him to release his power into our lives because we spend time in his word. We talk to him through prayer, and then we yield to his Holy Spirit. So just those three things. You pick up God's word, and you see that he says... My strength is made perfect in your weakness. I give power to those who are not feeling mighty. My right arm will deliver you. Scripture is replete with the descriptions of what God can do. So we read his word, and then we spend time in prayer and say, Father, I am feeling really weak right now. I don't know that I can stand up against this temptation. I don't know that I can endure what I'm going through. And God's response is, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So we yield to the leading of his Holy Spirit. And God releases his power into our lives. It's what he asks us to do. Read his word, spend time with him in prayer, and obey him. And you'll find an energy level like you have never known, enabling you to run the race. That's why Paul could come to the end of his life and write what he did in Galatians he recognized that he'd reached the point where he was finishing the race well. And he he wrote this about the race for himself. Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, isn't that amazing? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and offered himself up for me. It's really consistent. Scripture is just so consistent. Paul's saying the exact same thing. I'm living this thing by faith because of the one who loves me, and he offered himself up for me. So you, can run, you can run just like Paul. Let me pray that this will be a reality in your life this week as you take on circumstances. Would you pray with me? Father, there's some in this room right now who are feeling incredibly weary. And, and some feel like they don't even have one more prayer left in them. God, I would ask that you would be near to them through the power and the comforting capacity of your Holy Spirit that you will sit right next to them in the seat that they're in and just remind us it's okay. Our weakness is perfected in your strength that you will enable us. It's not on us to do it. Father, let your Spirit speak those truths. For those in this room who find themselves wandering or maybe laying in the grass and have not yet engaged or engaged and got off the track, Father, I ask for the sake of our entire church, for the sake of your kingdom, that you will embolden us to be ready to be athletes for you, to run the race well, to talk to our friends and family members about this kingdom, to represent you in the world that we live in, to drop the weights, and certainly, Father, not to let the sin make us stumble. God, I ask for that for the sake of your church and for the expansion of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.